Amen. Have you ever wondered how GPS works? I have. Um, so this week I looked into it, and it's actually really fascinating. If you're that little X, and you want to know where you are, um, you reach out to a satellite. And these satellites are talking to a ton of receivers all at the same time, so all they can really do is ping their position. They say, here I am. I am this far from you. I'm going to give you the explanation if we lived in a static universe where nothing was moving. That's not the case. But when you bring time into it, I couldn't understand the math. And so I'm pretending like we're in a static, still universe. So the satellite says, I'm this far from you. The problem is, if you know your geometry, there is an infinite number of points in the formation of a circle that are also that far from that satellite. So as far as you know, you could be anywhere in that circle, and you would be the exact same distance from that satellite. Okay? We all get our basic geometry of a circle. So you need a second satellite. So you reach out to a second satellite. If you've got a phone or a GPS receiver or whatever you're working from, and you reach out and you say, um, you find a second satellite. There I am. Okay? So I do it. Of course, that satellite has all it can do is ping its position so it creates a circle you're anywhere on that circle so now you've narrowed it down to two points you can be here or you can be here so of course what do we do third satellite right we call it triangulation you hear it on like 24 and and fbi shows all the time it's awesome so we find a third satellite and that third light puts us on his circumference and there can only be one place you are and that's how we do gps it's called triangulation I just thought that was cool Let's read our passage for today. <laughs> Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, you may, all, you may be also. And I go, and where I go, you know, and you know the way. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. Jesus said, have I been with you so long, yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, or, and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Okay, we're going to start off in verse 5, because uh, I don't know if you've noticed, it feels like we're following Thomas around through kind of Lent and, and uh, Eastertide, which has been kind of fun, and I've really kind of fallen in love with Thomas. He only speaks three times in the Gospels, and we've hit all three of them. He's the kind of sarcastic, snarky guy in the Lazarus story. He's like, oh, yeah, let's all go to Jerusalem. We can all buy with him. Um, then he's the guy in the, in the resurrection story who's like the empirical evidence guy, like not until I stick my hands in his side am I going to believe. Um, and here we find him again in this uh, story where Jesus is talking about being the way. And the thing I love most about Thomas is he always seems to be saying what I'm thinking. Like he's, 
He's a very real person. He's, he's very down to earth. And here he is again, kind of starting us off. And this time I'm going to actually kind of put our main point first. And then we're going to build from there. Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Thomas reveals something huge about the human nature here that we're going to talk about. And that is that we are a destination people. We, he's like, there's absolutely no way I can know the way if I don't know the destination. Right? I mean, it makes sense. I don't know if you know this, but the U.S. Air Force um, organizes and maintains our satellite system. I got on the, you can go to uh, gps.gov, some fascinating stuff there if you want to do some reading. But uh, we keep 24 satellites. They figured out with line of sight and everything that it takes 24 satellites to basically be able to triangulate you any place on the planet. So they have 31 in rotation at any given time that they can activate to make sure that 24 are seeing every spot on the planet. Um, and they keep that up about 95% of the time. You can, they have 24 working satellites looking at the globe 95% of the time. Then they've got like four or five that are deactivated that they can, I guess, grab the TV remote and turn them on if they have to. Um, if, they're, if they've got a blind spot, they can turn on some missing satellites. And this costs the taxpayers, since 2009, an average of $1.1 billion a year. Um, back in 2011, they only spent half a billion, but they made up for it in the next two or three years. So we average about $1.1 billion um, of taxpayer money to keep the satellite system. These are GPSs that are just for talking to your phone or your GPS unit, just to give you where you are and where you're going. And we're, we feel like that's worth it because we're a destination people. We want to know where we are and we want to know where we're going. And the problem with this is Jesus is going to turn this on its head a little bit um, in this passage. So we're going to go back to verse 1 now. Whoops. Yeah, there's that. Uh, so this passage, I go to my house. My father's house is a house of many mansions. We, we, we quote this one a lot. We hear this one a lot. And we're usually talking about what? Heaven. Of course, we're talking about heaven. Let not your heart be troubled. I believe it. You believe in God. Believe also in me and my father's house are many mansions. Here's what I want you to catch about this, though. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. I go, or I go for a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I will come again and receive you to myself, that you may be where I am. I go. I prepare. I'll come again. I'll receive you. Who bears the responsibility of heaven? Jesus does. Of course, Jesus does. He basically says, I've got the heaven part. Okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to prepare. When I'm ready, I'll come back, I'll receive you. That's my job. What is your job? The way. He says, the way. That's your job. You, you know the way. You know where I'm going, you know the way. You know the way, the way you know. And of course, Thomas steps in and goes, how can we know the way? We don't even know where you're going. Like, we have to know the destination if we're going to know the way. Which makes sense. You can't, if you've ever used a GPS or your phone, I mean, you can kind of zoom in on the maps now. You couldn't do that on the old GPSs and kind of find your own way. But it's much easier just to enter a destination and it takes you there, right? So Jesus says, you know the way. You know where we're going. Thomas says, no, we don't. We can't. It's impossible. We have to have a destination. And Jesus gets into his famous verse, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. I am the way. This is big. And I'm going to break this down a little bit. I'm going to mess with some people and you're going to be tempted to think I'm going pluralist, but I'm not. So hang with me for a second. Um, 
because the reason I think this works is John, I used to hate John. If you've ever read much of John, he drove me crazy because what kind of historian doesn't follow chronology? It just doesn't even make sense. If you're going to record events, you've got to put them in chronological order. And John doesn't. He just jumbles everything up. And it took years of studying John um, and listening to some other teachers to realize that John is almost more of a creative writer. And he might actually be an absolutely brilliant writer. There's some really neat stuff. And like if you study the first five miracles in the book of John, um, they match the five primary um, Hellenistic gods of, um, of Asia Minor. So like the water turning wine is the only one that, re- that records that. The area John was writing to, Dionysus was a huge Greek god. He was the god of wine. And so, and then uh, the feeding the multitudes, the god of bread and harvest was one of them. He raises somebody from the dead. Those first five match the first five gods of Asia, the first five primary Greek gods of Asia Minor, almost like Jesus was, or, or John was kind of intentionally putting in this order to say, my Jesus trumps what you've got to offer. It's, it's pretty fascinating. Food for thought. Um, we don't have any absolute proof that that's why he did that, but it's, it's kind of interesting. Things to think about. And I think this verse is similar to that. Because there were three main faith systems in the Middle East at this time. We've actually talked about this before. There, You had um, kind of the Hellenistic um, uh, polytheism that had kind of been overtaken for about 600 years by Western philosophy, what kind of became Western philosophy. You've got the Eastern influence of kind of Taoism and Buddhism and some Hinduism. And then you've got the Jewish faith sitting kind of right in the middle of that. And what's fascinating is in this verse, anybody know what Taoism is? Or read or did anything with Tao? You know what Tao means? The word the Tao. Do I have no C.S. Lewis like the the um, the abolition of man? Bill, you know what Tao means? The way means the way. Yeah, the word the Tao means the way. Taoists are obsessed with finding the way. Um, that and they they name the religion after it. The name of their religion is the way. Um, and Buddhists and Hindus, you know, we kind of make fun of of the reincarnation. Um, aspect of Buddhism and Hinduism, karma and reincarnation. And to them, I don't know if you know this, but that's actually hell. Um, reincarnation is actually their version of hell. What they're looking for is the escape from the endless death and reincarnation, the karmic um, cycles. Like their heaven is to get out of that cycle. And to do it, the way you get out of that cycle, something they call the eightfold way, the eightfold path. Um, and if you can live according to the eightfold way, you escape the endless cycle of of death and reincarnation. The Easterners at this time were obsessed with the way. Okay? And then we get into Western thought. About 600 years before Jesus, the first philosophers started kind of kicking around the concept of what we call um, epistemology, the understanding of knowledge and thought. They started kind of breaking this stuff down. By the 300s, it had completely taken over. You've got Socrates, who believed that all knowledge could be summed up into either opinion or truth. And he started identifying what truth was. And Plato um, broke it down to the point that he had like this path you could take to guarantee that you had knowledge and truth and not just opinion. And then comes Aristotle about 3.30 or so. And Aristotle kind of turned all that upside down and kind of created the big debate between objective truth and subjective truth that's really still kind of the main debate in philosophy. How do we know what we know? And is it just objectively true? Is it just what we think is true? And and that's been going on. That was about 300 years before Jesus. So this is kind of the subject um, in Western thought right now. And, and Israel was under Roman Western control. So this is a, 
a major thing. In fact, you see Jesus um, kind of getting into it a little bit with Pilate when he talked to Pilate, who was a, a Western, he was a Roman um, governor of Israel, or of, yeah, yeah, of Israel, and um, and Pilate says, therefore, uh, Pilate therefore said to him, "Are you a king?" Then Jesus answered, "You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who knows uh, who is of the truth hears my voice." And Pilate says, "What is truth?" And that was the philosophical question of the day: How do we know truth? What is truth? This is what the West was doing. I think Jesus is playing in on this a little bit, kind of baiting Pilate. And Pilate is going, ah, but what is truth? And he, he kind of buys into it. And then we got our third one, the life. Now, you might know what chayim means? It's a Jewish toast. They actually, lechayim, what does that mean? To life. Right. If you go back to kind of the inauguration of, of Judaism, this was the day of the covenant when, when Moses came up with the law and, and he said, this is, if you agree to this covenant, he will be your God, you will be his people. And this is how he says it. I call... Heaven and earth is witness today against you that I've set them before you. I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both of you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life in the length of your days, that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. It's possible. This is a possibility. That Jesus, standing in the midst of all of these different voices and pressures, says, I am the way that Easterners think they're looking for. I am the truth the Westerners are hunting for. I am the life that Israel has been searching for forever. I mean, he came and said, I come to give you life and give it to you abundantly. So Jesus kind of stands here in the middle of this message and he says, I, you're looking for a destination and I am it. I am the destination. I am what you've been searching for. It doesn't matter where you are or what your background is, whether you're looking for the Tao, whether you're wrapped up in a Socratic argument, hunting for truth, or whether you're following a law that's supposed to give you life. I am the answer. He takes the focus off of the destination and puts it on him. Let's get into this next part. He says, No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you know him. You have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. It will be sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me? Philip, he who has seen the Father, has seen, or has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Or believe it for the works sake themselves. One of the pressures that Jesus was under, really, and, and the writers of the New Testament especially, was the, the weight of the Shema. The Shema Yisrael was the, the prayer. Um, this, is, this is Israel's Apostles' Creed. This is their Lord's Prayer. This shaped them, because when Israel began, there were no monotheistic cultures alive. All, all cultures in that area, and really as far as we can tell on the globe, were polytheistic. They believed in multiple gods. 
And so there was a huge identifying factor in the, in the Shema, which is really a simple prayer. See, oh, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. That's the whole prayer. And that, that was enough of them. We serve the one God. And this was their defining prayer for their existence, was the Shema Yisrael. Oh, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And in comes Jesus. And it brought up all kinds of philosophical questions. Like, how can we have... And these are, these are questions that they literally asked. Like, uh, when they were trying to understand the nature of Jesus, they were like, if God was on earth, then who's running heaven? Like, that was a real question. They asked it that way. Who's running heaven? Like, who's at the controls when God is a baby? Did, did, were we just on cruise control for a while? Just the universe just runs on its own? This was a real... I don't know, they didn't say cruise control, but this was a real question. When Jesus was a baby, who's running the universe? Because they were trying to sort out how can we, for centuries, like, wrestle with, with one God and now we've got two, maybe, and now Jesus is talking about a third, and so they were constantly under the weight of, and, and as we get into Acts, we're going to find this, this was a major theme um, as the church began, was how do we, what do we do with, with the Shema, now that we have sort of three gods, and that's a, and as the, the original formation of theology bore the weight of this question, and so I think this is what's happening here with Jesus, because you gotta, you got to understand, this was huge. And we've heard this passage so many times that it's not that, it's, you know, it's not that weird for us. Whoa, where did I go? Well, oh my goodness gracious. This is hard backwards. I don't know if you've ever done this. But these statements where Jesus is saying, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. The Father and I are one. I don't speak my own authority. It's the Father within me. This is Jesus dealing with the Shema. This is, he's talking to a group of disciples who had been raised under the Shema. That's all they had ever known. That's all their parents had ever known. And so they're like, show us the Father. This is what we've been waiting for. You're the Messiah. This is what we were hoping for. The destination. Like that you are going to show us the destination. You're going to take us to the destination. That's how we usually read this verse. No one comes to the Father except by me. We're linear people. We go, okay, Father, goal, Jesus is the way to the goal. Like, that's, that's what we do, right? We, and we make this like a salvation, like a get to heaven verse. No one gets to the destination unless, they, unless I bring it, unless I'm the one. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. The Father and I are one. Like, I'm not a way to the Father. I am the Father. I am the, the Father and the Son are one. If you have me, you have the Father. You have the whole thing. You have the destination. It's all right here. He's saying, this isn't a, there's not a finish line. I am the finish line. This isn't a, I'm not selling you something in the future. I'm selling you something now. This is me. The Father and I are one. Oh, I went back to it in my thing. The Father is not a destination. The Father is who we're called to fellowship with now. When we fellowship with Jesus, we fellowship with the Father. One of the things that we do, how many of you ever heard the the argument that starts if you die tonight? Ever heard that? How many of you have said it? Come on. How many of you have said it? I've said it. Seriously, I'm the only one? I want a real hand. Okay. 
Yeah, if you die tonight, do you know where you're going to wake up, right? That's the question, and it, and, it, and it bears on us. Like, what happens if you die tonight? Do you know where you're going to wake up? I think that's a terrible question, honestly. I think the question is, what if you live? What if you live through the night? Are you going to wake up knowing why you're here? What if you live through 50 years more nights? Are you going to know why? If you live through the night, are you going to wake up in the arms of a Savior? I think that's the question. We're not selling a get-out-of-jail-free card. You know, we're not selling... Because if you sell heaven, and this is... you got to bear with me, because this is going to be tough on some people. If you sell heaven, you're not selling Jesus. You know what I'm saying? If you sell heaven, because there's nothing more, more selfish than that decision. I don't want to go to hell. I'll believe. Like, that's not faith in Jesus. That's self-preservation. That's a whole different thing. Faith in Jesus is, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus, and do I want to follow him? What does he stand for? You know, what has he done for me? What, and Jesus even says, look at the works I've done. It, like, when you see that, when you see, like John, and I love this, one of my favorite parts of John, John the Baptist, not John the writer, sorry. Um, John is part of the redemptive like story. He's a precursor. Like He kind of has to be there for the prophetic message to work. So John's got a major role. John the Baptist, of course. Right? And he comes, and he's been arrested. He's questioning his life. He's questioning his ministry. Like, Herod is eventually going to kill him, but at this point, nothing's really working out for John. Like, and he sends his disciples to Jesus, and he says, are you the one that we look for another? Like, are you the one we've been looking for? I think he was doubting at that point. I think he was just struggling with his faith. And he just wanted confirmation. And it would have been awesome if Jesus had given him some. But he doesn't. That's what's weird. If anybody seems like he deserved an upper hand, it was John. Like for Jesus to go, don't sweat it, man. I'm the one you find. But he doesn't. He says, go back and tell John the things you've seen. That the deaf receive hearing and the blind are getting their sight back and the gospel is preached to the poor. Go back and tell John what I'm doing. Because Jesus wasn't selling heaven. He was like, look at my life. Is this what you want to be a part of? Is this what you want to stand for? And that's what he's doing here. Thomas shows it to us. He shows us that we're consumed, we're consumed with the destination. We're consumed with with heaven. Like, how can we know the way if we don't know where we're going? I want to know where we're going. That's what I'm concerned with. And Jesus says, you've missed it. I'm where you're going. I'm the way, right here. Is heaven attached? Sure. At least I believe it is. But is that the goal? No. I don't believe it is. I think Jesus takes care of heaven. He says, I go, I prepare, I come again, I receive you. That's his job. Our job is attaching ourselves to the way. You may have noticed we don't give an altar call here, and that bothers some people, and I get that. Is it because I don't believe in salvation? No. Is it because, you know, I don't think that there's a conversion moment? No. We don't give an altar call because I don't want to sell you a finish line. I just invite you on a journey with Jesus. That's all I do. And that's my goal, and that's what I'll always do. If you feel a tugging on your heart, 
That's God. That doesn't just happen. That's not human curiosity. The response is to follow. The response is to, is to follow Jesus. Not a destination, not a goal, not an end game, not a maybe someday. But Jesus, just right here and right now. And I love this last part because it's almost like a litmus test to see if we're catching it. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do. Because I go to my Father, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father might be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. When we come to this passage, what are we usually looking for? What's the part that, really, that we really focus on? Huh? I will do it. Yeah, it's, a, it's like a guaranteed answer in prayer. And that's usually why we, why we quote it. Like he said, anything we ask in his name, he's going to do it. I <laughs> use those words with that same tone so many times. It's scary. What do you think we're supposed to be focused on? Can you find it? The big question, what? In his name, yeah. Like we've made it a tagline in the name of Jesus, amen. Like we've kind of made it a tagline. I did a search on this. I could only find two times in that era where the, the phrase in his name was used. One was a, was a um, imperial herald um, where an imperial herald would, would be sent out by the Caesar because this is before mass communication, so there's no way to get a message out other than to send out heralds. So the Caesar would... Um, christen basically uh, a herald or a group of heralds usually and give them a message and they would go out in the Caesar's name and it was this is capital in his name and if a herald if an imperial herald told you something from Caesar it was law it was like Caesar told it to you and if you ignored that you ignored Caesar and you would be put to death the hard part was if you were an imperial herald and you messed up the message you were killed immediately like if you were given the authority to speak in his name and you used it wrongly or you said it wrong, you didn't get the message exactly the way Herod Caesar told you to, you were beheaded on the spot for being a bad herald. The second place I found this phrase was in a rabbinical disciple. The rabbis would send out their disciples. Jesus actually does this once. He sent the disciples out in his name two by two and they came back and they were like, even the demons were subject to us. Like they were really excited rabbis would do that. They would send out a disciple in, in his name. And when that happened, it meant uh, you were supposed to speak that rabbi's message. And you would come and say, I, I come in the name of Hillel. And you would, you would preach or teach the way Hillel would. And you had to stick to the party line. You had to say what Hillel would say. And if you were a good rabbi and you stayed a rabbi long enough, your, or a disciple, I'm sorry, your rabbi would give you authority. It was called giving authority. And he would, that's when he would make you a rabbi. And you now have the authority to speak in your own name and you can say whatever you want and you can put your own twists and adjustments and interpretations on the Torah as you see fit. But until then, you don't speak in your own name. You speak in the name of your rabbi and you have to say what he would say. A rabbinical disciple is not allowed to speak um, his own ideas and in his own name. What I think is fascinating is in the Great Commission, we're called to make disciples. We're never called to make rabbis. We're never called to make the finished product. The disciples were, the goal is you eventually become a rabbi, your own rabbi. But what's interesting is Jesus never tells us to make rabbis. He never tells us to make somebody who can think for himself. He tells us to make somebody who can speak in someone else's name. 
And so I think on this thing, we, 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 t- we tend to go to this passage and go straight for the destination. We go straight for, he promised he will do it. And we skip over, what does it mean to pray in his name? What does it mean to, to pray without a destination? How do I say things the way Jesus would say things? How do I pray what Jesus would pray? How do I see to it that when I'm praying, I'm praying exactly what he would pray in this moment. I'm true to my rabbi. I'm truly speaking in his name. Because I haven't been given authority. Only he has. I don't think Jesus wants us to focus on the destination. I think he wants us to focus on the way. I think he wants us to focus on the journey, on the path, on what it means to live a life hand in hand with Jesus. I don't think he's. Con- he, I don't think he wants us concerned with the end game as much as he wants us concerned with today and these people and this task he's put immediately before me. And how do I do it with him? And how do I walk with him? As we enter into whoa. As we enter into our response time tonight, I want you to think about your your favorite relationships, like the the relationships you really cherish, family, friends, boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, children, parents, siblings, those people you feel like you couldn't live without. Hopefully it's growing to be some of the people in this room. What's the destination of that relationship? What's the end game? I hate to be morbid, but the end game is one of you is going to die, and then sometime thereafter the other one's going to die. <laughs> That's the end. That's the destination. You can't make a destination out of a relationship. You can't. Relationships are just they're just lived. The destination's terrible. Relationships are just about being together. And that's what Jesus is drawing us to. He's drawn He's drawn us to more than, than a goal. He's drawn us into a journey with Him. This might break some people's hearts, but this church has no goal. <coughs> this church has no destination. Doesn't mean there are things we you know we don't hope to do and places we don't have to go, but this is it, people. Doing church together. Loving each other, worshiping God together, praising Jesus. There is no big there is no big finish line. Our goal is right here, this is what we were hoping to do. To be a people gathered around a common teaching and a common table, to worship God together. That's the destination. And we do it every week. And we'll continue to do it every week. We just continue to love each other because that's what Jesus has called us to do.